Islam in America has been profoundly shaped by the black Muslim experience. However, black Muslims are often marginalized both within their own religious communities and in public discourse about Muslim Americans. Suad Abdul Kabir attends to this erasure by centering black Muslims to investigate the relationship between race, religion, and popular culture. In Muslim Cool, Race, Religion, and Hip-Hop in the United States, published with NYU Press, she offers a rich ethnography of Muslims in Chicago, many of whom are involved with the Inner City Muslim Action Network. Iman and members of its community regularly perform Muslim Cool, a blueprint for being Muslim in America that is steeped in blackness. Abdul Kabir's research helps us understand how black Muslims have shaped Islam in America in general, despite intracommunal tensions around anti-blackness. In our conversation, we discuss new approaches to hip-hop, the loop of Muslim cool, opinions about music in Islam and its use among Afro-diasporic Muslim communities, black Muslim women's veiling habits and its adoption by non-black Muslims, Muslim dandies and formulations of masculinity, state-sponsored cultural diplomacy trips and Muslim hip-hop artists, Sapelo Square as an effort to produce materials about black Muslims, and how family histories can enrich the archives of black Muslim Americans. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies. Without any further delay, here's my conversation with Suad Abdul-Kabir about Muslim Cool, Race, Religion, and Hip-Hop in the United States, published with NYU Press in 2016. Welcome, Suad. Thanks for joining us on New Books in Islamic Studies. Uh, How's it going? It's going. (laughs) How are you? (laughs) Good. I'm excited to talk about your book, uh, Muslim Cool. I've I've used it in class already, and I know a lot of people uh, have been talking about it. Mm -hmm. So um, congrats. It's it's really a wonderful book. Oh, thank you for that. Yeah. Um, Before we get into the book, though, um, we always start with a little bit about the author. So if you could tell us a little bit about um, your training, perhaps uh, mentors or moments Mm -hmm. that were influential in kind of shaping uh, either the topics you approach Mm -hmm. or your type of approach, uh, kind of what, what shaped you to be the, the scholar of Islam that you are. Right. Okay. Well, again, thanks for having me. Um, and um, thanks for using the book. Um, and thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk about the book and my work. Um, I think I will answer that question with a kind of a, I guess, kind of how I got into looking at Islam and hip hop. And so um, I, went, I was in Damascus, um, Syria, for... Um, from October 2001 through about June 2002. And I was there because I had graduated from college in 2000 and I had worked for a year at um, a foundation in the Baltimore area. And there was an opportunity to go and study Arabic um, and Islamic studies in Damascus. And now I'm a graduate of Islamic school. So I went from K through eighth grade. I went to Islamic elementary schools in New York City in Brooklyn, where I'm from, and had taken Arabic, you know, then I took Arabic in college um, as well. But this was opportunity and it was a program that the late Imam Wadifati Muhammad um, who was the son of um, Elijah Muhammad, he had a program that he had sort of uh, developed um, with the Mufti at the time um, in Damascus, Ahmed Koftaro. And the program was basically the idea was to bring young American students, mostly black, um, to Damascus to sort of, you know, learn Arabic and Islamic studies. So the opportunity came came my way and I just felt like at the time, I guess I was like 23 or something like that. And I thought, well, you know, if I'm, I'm going to do something like this, now is the time to do it, you know, type of thing. And so I went there um, and also to, 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 to determine whether or not I wanted to do Islamic studies, you know, like as a, as a field in terms of, and more, and not so much Islamic studies in the academic sense, but more like Islamic studies in the sort of religious teaching sense. And so I um so anyway I'm in I'm in Damascus and I went to um, my undergraduate degree is in foreign service I went to the school of foreign service at Georgetown and um, so I had a friend so anyway so at in if you ever like sort of travel like U S 
embassies have these American cultural centers that are sort of typically in the same places where the embassies are, and they may or may or may not be physically attached to the embassies, but they're meant to be these places where people can like learn about American culture. And so the American Cultural Center at the time, in February when I was there, they were doing Black History Month programming. And um, what they had planned was a series of films. So they were going to play, I remember it was a He Got Game, Boys in the Hood, Love and Basketball. And I was appalled. I was like, I was like, seriously, like this is your Black History Month programming? And so because I was in the School of Foreign Service, it just so happened that one of my former classmates was actually in the Foreign Service and he knew the cultural person who was overseeing the stuff, you know, at the cultural center. So he connected me to that person. And I was like, what's going on? And so I said, I, was, I said to them, I was like, oh, you know, you should invite Professor Suleiman Yang. May he rest in peace, who, you know, is a, was a foremost scholar, you know, kind of pioneering scholar on Islam in the United States. And I said, oh, you should invite Professor Suleiman Yang to come and do a talk. And their response to me was like, well, why don't you do a talk? <laughs> and so, which I guess I decided, okay. And when I just, when I was just thinking about, okay, well, if I'm going to do something about Black History Month and I'm in Damascus, you know, what, um, and this, I guess, too, is, um, I guess, also in the shadow, I guess, of 9-11. So 9-11 is not something that people in Damascus were really talking about, like in that kind of way, you know, um, um, that, I, that I imagined was happening in the States, although I missed most of that. And in fact, this is a side note. My flight was actually supposed to leave on September 14th, 2001. And, you know, I'm a New Yorker, so I was in New York. I was at home uh, when 9-11 happened. And then so our trip got postponed until October of that year. And when we were, we had a flight from like, it was like from JFK to Amman in Jordan, and then from Amman to Damascus. And when we were in Amman, they started bombing Afghanistan. I remember that because it was like we saw it on the like, you know, newscast in the airport there. Um, so, you know, so, but it wasn't something people were talking about in that kind of way, right, um, in Damascus. So, but in any event, I suppose that may have affected what I was thinking. I'm not really sure. But, but never, never, at the end of the day, for me, it was like, oh, I was like, well, let me talk about, it's Black History Month. I was like, oh, Islam and hip hop, you know, that would make a lot of sense because to me it was like, okay, you know, here we are, we have, this way we could talk about early Muslims in the United States, right? Because you're talking about black black Muslims, so you're going to talk about sort of enslaved African Muslims, it'll get you there. And then talking about culture, it just made a lot of sense to me that if I want to talk about Islam in America to an audience that would be new to it, um, this would be a great way to do that. So that's where it kind of started. And I realized, you know, the process of sort of doing the research and then creating the presentation and then actually giving the presentation, you know, um, was something I really, really enjoyed. And I thought, oh, like I would like to do this. And it's ironic because my mother was a teacher, may she rest in peace, and my grandmother may she rest in peace as well. They were both teachers, and I never wanted to be a teacher because teachers do way too much grading. Because I used to grade, <laughs> like my mother used to give me these like kind of like sheets, you know, with like keys on them, or yeah. to help her grade, you know. So I was like, I don't want to do that. But then I was like, oh, okay. I was like, but I thought, oh, college will be different. I was wrong, but I thought college <laughs> would be different. I'll do college. There'll be less grading. Um, grading is the bane of my existence. Any event. Um, so anyway, so I ended up, so that's how it starts, kind of how it started. And it's kind of ironic because I actually didn't think about, and it's even like, um, I still have, and I'm going to, one day I'm going to put them somewhere so people can see, like I have the newspaper clippings from like the Arabic news coverage of my talk. Right. And then I use music clips. So they made like a little, um, basically like mixtape, I guess you would call it, um, for, um, for, of the, of the, um, they made a mixtape of the thing and I actually wrote a rhyme as well, which I can send you the audio if you'd like to play it on this thing, because I don't remember exactly now. But, but any event, but but the point is, it's funny, it wasn't until I had finished Muslim Cool and had written, was published that I remembered this story, right? Because, you know, my book ends talking about the ways in which, and I, and I mentioned in the book, I, the book ends talking about sort of the ways in which, you know, Muslims in the United States have to deal with the state, right? And questions of hip hop diplomacy and the ways in which hip hop is used by the state as a way to sort of like manage its perceptions abroad, 
And then but OHOP has a, a different kind of meaning for Muslims, right, who may, in fact, go on these trips, right? They, they have a different kind of relationship to that. And so, and in the book, I talk about my own experience with not hip-hop diplomacy, but just like being, being you know, I was on this tour, and, and then I realized later it was like funded by the embassy, right? So I talk about my own experience with that, but I completely have forgotten, <laughs> like, literally, like, it kind of started there, you know, uh, which is something at some point I probably should write more about. But anyway, so that's how I kind of, that's a long way of saying that's how I got to Islam and hip hop. And then after that, after that Damascus thing, then I started kind of looking at stuff. There was a Muslim family reunion, Islam hip hop concert that was happening um, in Florida, I think. Oh, actually that was before, maybe that was actually 2000. So well, it was around, it was either before or after Damascus, I don't remember now. And I had kind of began to look at that, look at it then. And then I did some interviews. I got a grant from the Pluralism Project, actually, at Harvard. I got a small grant. This is before graduate school. Um, and John Vole, um, who's at Georgetown, um, was a great, he was one of my professors there. He really encouraged me to kind of pursue that. And so I got this small grant. And, and then I kind of did my own sort of research. And then ultimately that led me a couple of years later into entering graduate school. And then from there, you know. And I, and I, and I was an, I'm an anthropologist, so kind of from there, you know, the project grew. Yeah, so that's a great spot to kind of uh, think about this book as a as a project as it began to emerge. Um, so can you can you can you take us through the kind of next steps? How how did um, you know? So it's a it's a ethnographic project in many ways. Mm-hmm. It's a theoretical project in many ways. You're making lots of interesting interventions into to kind of various domains of scholarship. Um, can you can you perhaps talk about kind of where the idea to to think about this particular community, how this idea of Muslim mm-hmm. pool started to uh, formulate for you? Yeah. So I think so. Ultimately, I guess when it came time to um, uh when I get back from Damascus and I, I worked for two years um, at a juvenile justice project, um, which actually, ironically, I kind of first began to do ethnographic interviewing, which at the time I didn't know that's what it was um, because we had to interview probation officers about how they, the point of the project was to get kids to not be sent to placement, which was what they called incarceration. And so part of my job was to interview POs to see, you know, how were they making their decisions? Right. And to try to figure out how were they making any decisions. So I worked for kind of two years doing that. And then at the time, like I said, I missed most of the, the immediate aftermath of 9-11. But by the time I came back, you know, and there was a lot of conversation about Muslims, you know, sort of in mainstream media in the United States. But typically no one who looked like me, no one who was black, no one who was Latinx, you know, no one who was like from the hood, like none of that kind of stuff. And. So partially I was motivated by wanting to intervene in that sort of absence and erasure. Um, so that kind of first is how I kind of came, came to the space. Um, and then it was sort of thinking about, okay, well, what, again, what will kind of encapsulate, I think, if we're going to talk about that community, we're going to talk about Black Muslims um, in particular and, and, and their influence and their impact and who, what their history, et cetera. What is some way that can kind of encapsulate that? That was one thing. Um, I was also um, connected to the film, the, docu- the documentary project, New Muslim Cool. And that was something, because I was beginning to do this research, Jennifer Taylor, who was the director, she kind of reached out to me and said, hey, do you want to be an advisor putting this stuff together? And so that also kind of gave me um, sort of, you know, sort of another, I guess, push, you know, to sort of think about it um, as well. But I will say this, I think that what my sort of graduate work was and what the book are, are different in, I think, a really important way. And I think that my graduate work was sort of, um, was kind of motivated, again, by this kind of wanting to address an erasure, right? Um, and, and this erasure of Black Muslims and Latinx Muslims from the kind of narrative, both the scholarly and the... Um, both the scholarly and the kind of popular narrative of Muslims in America. Um, But I think my book is much more motivated about wanting to talk about blackness um, and race um, and thinking about Muslims. So not so much, um, which, and it does, I think it, it addresses the question of erasure as well, but really, for me, it's like, well, what do, what do, what do Muslim engagements with the black experience in the United States 
teach us about race and blackness today and the complicated ways in which people are navigating that and reproducing different kinds of racial orders, um, which is a kind of a different, you know, sort of angle, right? And so I think, and so for me, Muslim cool then is about that, right? It's about both. So I guess it's kind of doing both those things. It's like, it's about identifying um, this sort of the ways in which Muslimness and Blackness have always kind of been together and moving and integrated, but also how Muslims do race teaches us about how sort of Americans, I guess to say, do race, you know? Um, and that, and that shift was something that came, I think, um, after graduate school. Um, and it came because I think for me, I wanted to, that, that is what became important to me, right? Thinking about race and blackness, how it operates, how people navigate it. And ultimately what can we do to sort of undo the kind of racial hierarchies we live with. And so I think that became sort of what was most important to me. And so then it was like thinking about, well, what is it that I've done and I've learned can teach, can help me sort of think through that and help other people think through that, um, if that makes sense. Yeah, and uh, if you could kind of just take a little bit more about this, mm-hmm. uh, a Muslim cool is kind of a conceptual tool because I right. think it's, it's extremely valuable and I think it really kind of adds so much but um, so part part of it, if I if I read it correctly, mm-hmm. is it's uh, it's kind of at this uh, this tension point between um, blackness and anti-blackness um, for Muslims, both uh, in terms of kind of white supremacy, but then also within Muslim contexts, um, mm-hmm. uh, kind of a dominance of Arab and South Asian Muslims. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about yeah, yeah. how it fits into that? Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. And so, yeah, so so the term itself, right, is, is something that I'm using to describe a way of being and a way of thinking about being Muslim in the United States. One that kind of engages Blackness to counter anti-Blackness, right? And I think, and again, this idea of what, how Muslims engage blackness, what it teaches about race and blackness more broadly is that, you know, you're dealing with kind of like multiple, multiple, multiple sort of intersecting or not, not multiple, I guess for me, it's sort of two dominant, but intersecting kind of forms of racial hegemony. So you have white supremacy, but you also have the ways in which the kind of ethnic and cultural practices of Arab and South Asian U.S. American Muslims operate as hegemonic and in U.S. Muslim communities, right? And so the way you dress, the, what you eat, how you pray, like all these things that are not, you know, they things that are in fact culturally inspired or culturally um, attuned, you know, they get they get the kind of um, they get the kind of they become authoritative in a sort of this is just the religion kind of way, right? And then they be, they become the evaluative metric by which you know all other kind of religious practice and authority and legitimacy is measured. And part of what Muslim cool is doing is countering that as well as white supremacy in the way those two things can overlap and intersect. Right. And so there are ways in which, you know, the kind of the general, um, the general way in which white supremacy devalues blackness. Right. So, you know, um, so for example, you know, um, something like, you know, I don't know what was I'm just going to give you an example. Something like, you know, um, you know, black religion, right? It's not like black Christianity or something. It's not real. Or it's like, it's too, it's too emotional or it's not intellectual, whatever. You know, these kind of things. Or black people, you know, they're over the hypersexual, hyperviolent, like all those kinds of sort of, sort of ways in which kind of white supremacist frameworks devalue black people um, have, have resonances or are or, or, or iterated in Muslim communities, right? And so one of the things that I talk about um, in the book, like an example I gave is around music, right? And debates around music. And the idea is that, yes, in a general sense, in the Muslim community globally, right? Music is something that people debate. What, what, what instruments you can and cannot use? Is it or is it not permissible? Yes, right? But when it comes to the ways in which Muslims engage and use music in the United States, that general debate has racial overtones. And one of the arguments I make in the book, therefore, is that so black music, like musical forms that come out of black traditions, 
are, are then are evaluated as such as if they're you know, their religious legitimacy is suspect. So in the same ways in which blackness is devalued under white supremacist frameworks, it's also devalued under these kind of ethno-religious hegemonies of Arabs and South Asians. Um, and so something that is so that so the music is like haram is not it's not just it's not just haram, right? It's the blackness makes it haram is kind of one of the things that I sort of explain in the book. And so Muslim cool then intervenes as a way to say, well wait a minute, you know, you know, so it's like, wait a minute. So one is to identify that's what's happening. Right? So that the, the ways in which kind of this music is being like hip hop, for example. So some of the examples I give in the book talk about sort of like, you know, people who use hip hop music who are, who are ostensibly singing about and talking about the very same thing as someone who might do um, a Nasheed song from the Middle East. Like the content is the same completely. Um, but because it's hip hop, people are like, well, we don't know. Wait a minute. What's this? You know, type of thing. And so part of what Muslim cool the intervention is to kind of assert, right, to say, well, one, you know, one, yes, the content is the same. And two, not only is the content the same, but there's a long history, right, of Muslims and Muslims of African descent, both in the continent and in the United States, using music as a way of sort of engaging their religious identities, sharing a song with other people, you know, understanding what it means to be Muslim. And so what we're doing is a part of that. Um, and so it's kind of sort of challenging that hegemony, you know, sort of in that way. So that's kind of, so conceptually, I think Muslim cool is about this kind of challenge, right, that gets posed um, and ways of what people think about, but also how they live, how you live Islam, right? So for example, like what kind of music you listen to or what kind of music you perform is also a way of living your Islam. And so I think it's doing that on both of those kind of levels. One of the things I really liked about the book um, was the way you kind of challenged uh, scholarship mm-hmm. on hip hop. Um, and I know since, you know, it's um, you know, not the main focus of, of, of our mm-hmm. podcast here, uh, but, but maybe you could just briefly talk about, um, you know, what, what are some of the ways that uh, traditionally people approach hip hop? Because uh, that kind of sounded a little bit like what you were answering right. before, right? What are people saying and what was right. the content? Um, but then kind of, can you talk maybe, uh, or, or kind of tell us how do you kind of conceptualize the domain of hip hop and then how do you feel like you're yeah. adding to that? Yeah. Yeah. So I think, um, so, so hip hop, you know, I think people, so there's a kind of general attitude, um, I think outside of hip hop communities in particular, um, in which hip hop is something that's either, um, you know, kind of the worst thing that ever happened to humanity because it's just degenerate and, you know, violent and hypersexual, or it's like this unfiltered speaking truth to power type of thing, you know, which is really, um, a kind of, which really sort of, um, doesn't, doesn't accurately, right. Those two poles do not accurately, um, describe or sort of identify or analyze what hip hop actually is. And, you know, one of the arguments I make in the book is that hip hop is, you know, both of those things at the same time, right? The idea is that it's both, it is in fact a commodity, right? It's something that circulates, it's something that is bought and sold and its ability, its profitability is, is built upon the ways in which, particularly for commercially profitable hip hop, the ways in which it traffics in these kind of really um, sort of archetypal, archetypal um, ideas of black, blackness, right? Uh, and black people as kind of, as hypersexual and as hyperviolent um, and those sorts of things. Um, but at the same end, you know, um, and this is, you know, a lot of my, my work around pop culture um, is, um, is connected. Like I, I, I'm, I'm deeply influenced in it too at home. And um, this idea of when he talks about black popular culture and he talks about the ways in which it's this contradictory space. And so on the one hand, it's definitely this commodity. It's this thing that you're like, did black people even create that? You know, <laughs> where did that come from? Right. But at the same time, some, you can still sort of see, right. Sort of where, sort of how it came out of black communities. I think hip hop does that too. Um, you know, hip hop exemplifies that. And so, you know, so there is this, sense in which yes like hip-hop music and culture can reflect right what is happening in the communities from which it is it has emerged right and of course hip-hop i I just i refer to it as an afro diasporic um musical um 
form because it, it, the people who created it came from the diaspora, right? Both the both sort of North America, but also the English speaking and Spanish speaking Caribbean, and so. Um, and so it kind of does that. So it's complicated and it's contradictory, right? Um, and that would, and like, in like most popular culture forms, that's what it does. And that's what makes it fruitful and interesting and dynamic. Um, and so one, I approach hip hop from that way. So I, so I recognize that it has that dynamism. It has that contradiction that's there. And so, which, and, and there's a depth, right? That's the first thing. I think the second thing is that um, when you recognize that dynamism and that depth and that contradiction, then you can recognize the ways in which hip hop music and culture is connected to very deep existential questions, right? Um, and that even in some of the most, you know, kind of, um, I guess, irreverent, right, hip hop music, I think ultimately these questions about who I am, why am I here? Why do I exist? What is the plan for me? You know, what is going on? All those kind of questions are sort of always sort of there. And in many ways for me, the way that I argue in the book um, is that 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 sort of existential um, kind of interest or focus, um, when it, particularly when it takes an ethical standpoint, like how do I treat myself, the divine, the, the natural world, other people, you know, this comes from Islam's influence on hip hop. And so one of the other interventions that I tried to make um, sort of was around talking about hip hop and religion. And I think that there had been um, before. So before I wrote my book, there had been some work on Islam and hip hop for sure. Right. And Muslims and hip hop um, and sort of thinking about and sort of setting a ground, setting the ground. And a lot of that work really looked at um, sort of the music itself. And so, you know, the language of the music and the artists and what were they doing and how, the, and how, and how, and how, and sort of tell, narrating a story that way, which is a very much sort of textual analysis, which is very much also from the kind of the disciplines that that work was coming out of. When it came to hip hop and religion, that work started to come out that sort of wasn't, was also doing textual analysis, but also was bringing in a sense of what is the role of spirituality and religion here? Yet often that work tended to be primarily the frames of spirituality and religion that were being used were Christian ones, right? Um, uh, they weren't sort of just broad, right? And so, so, so for me, the book, so, and so for me, Muslim Cool in my book was like, okay, well, one, on one hand, I want to build on this textual analysis that's already happened, right, around Islam and hip hop. And I want to bring it, I want to bring it sort of off of the page, off of the word into real life. Cause I'm an anthropologist, right? So I'm really interested. And so what do these things look like? What are these, these references and, and these symbols and all this stuff that's happening in the music? What does that look like in everyday life? How are everyday people actually engaging or not or dealing or understanding or using that? All right. So that was one thing. And then in terms of this kind of Christian centric sort of uh, sort of framework, also wanting to sort of intervene there, because, you know, when it comes to sort of religion and hip hop, um, you know, Islam is really central, right? And it's not that Christianity doesn't have a role, because obviously it doesn't, you know, lots of MCs are practicing Christians or they rely on Christian metaphors. But, you know, you know, my argument is that the kind of ethic, you know, people talk about hip hop music and culture, particularly from within the community, they talk about elements, right? And they make this point that hip hop has these elements and the artistic elements are sort of emceeing, DJing, dance, and graffiti. And then there's the fifth element, which is knowledge. And that element, knowledge is short, short for knowledge of self. And knowledge of self is a concept that sort of early hip hop pioneers brought into the music and culture that they took from the nation of Islam, right? And particularly from um, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad and his idea of knowledge of self. And, and that is really central. I think knowledge of self is very central to hip hop music and culture, and it continues to be that way. And so I think, therefore, Islam's role cannot be underestimated, right? And, and really Black Muslims' role cannot be underestimated. And so also what I'm trying to do is sort of, you know, kind of give that its due, I think, and, and, and understand how it operated then, how and how it operates now, and what it might say for the future. So that's kind of, I think, sort of what I'm trying to do when it comes to hip hop scholarship. Now, um, in terms of kind of getting getting into it, you, your ethnography revolves around um, Chicago, um, and then specifically the Inner City Muslim Action Network. Um, mm-hmm. So can you can you talk a little bit about? What what Iman is all about? What is what is its community all about? Um, how did you get involved uh, with? Yeah, 
Yeah, so Iman, the Inner City Accent, um, Action Network, um, is a um, nonprofit organization um, based on the south side of Chicago, southwest side of Chicago. Um, it's now, ooh, how old is Iman now? Gosh, it's got to be about 20 some odd years, probably old now as an institution. Um, it focuses on sort of a couple different things. So both kind of providing direct services. Um, at the time I did my research, it didn't have all these services that it has now, but it has sort of like a free health clinic and um, they do this green reentry program where they um, provide um, employment opportunities for, pe- for people like envir- employment opportunities in the green economy for people who are recently um, formerly incarcerated um, and so it, you know, they could kind of youth development programming, so it's kind of direct services for the local community. Um, they also do, excuse me, advocacy around issues affecting the local community. And then they have a, a significant part of their work, which is kind of this arts-based activism. Um, and that's where I sort of intersected with Iman most in terms of this idea of how hip hop and hip hop was the primary form primary art form that they were using when I was doing my research, although now it's expanded, I think, to other kinds of um, forms of music, but also um, sort of visual arts and um, film and sort of like physical art. You know, so they've done, they do, there's, broad, there's a broader, broader artistic range, I, I should say, than when I was doing my research with them. But the idea of, so how can you use arts and art practice to motivate and mobilize and organize people um, around issues of important, and particularly for men, these issues are around issues of racial justice and economic justice and social inequality, and addressing those. And so that is the organization. Um, and I ended up there because I met the executive director of the organization, Rami Nashashibi, at this event. And at the time, I was interested in Islamic hip hop. I was going to go to Morocco to look at that because I had done some previous kind of like, you know, summer trips to Morocco and, you know, there's hip hop there. And I was like, oh, okay, this will be interesting. Um, and he said, oh, why don't you come check out what we're doing in Chicago before you head out? And I was like, okay, I'll do that. So I kind of came and ended up being the event coordinator for their festival, taking it to the streets. Um, that was in 2007. Um, and ended up just staying because I think, um, for some personal reasons, but also, you know, Chicago, um, I'm a, I'm a New Yorker, so Chicago is new to me, but it had a really, it has a really deep history when it comes to Islam in America. Right. Um, and also black music, um, and also organizing histories. And so I think that, um, hip hop, you know, so Chicago was this really kind of interesting place for me to be at and be in any man was to, um, did I answer the question all the way? Yeah. So what's the what's the community? Okay. Who's involved with it? Who, oh, thank you. Know, you. Yes, I knew there was more. Your, uh, <laughs> yes. people you were yeah, yeah, yeah. So I knew there was more. I was like, there's something else he said. Um, and so the community itself, um, so the local community Iman is located in is primarily Black and Mexican-American, although the community of people who worked there, particularly when I was working there, were so multi-ethnic Muslims. So Rami Nashashibi is Palestinian American, um, um, but then there were other, a lot of sort of Black U.S. Americans who were working there. Um, that part of Chicago was also had. By the time I was there, that 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 community was really small, but had historically also been a kind of center of Palestinian U.S. American Muslim sort of life in the city. And so there were still um, some young Palestinians who were part of the Arab Americans and, of course, South Asian um, um, U.S. Americans who were also a part of the kind of like Muslim community, people who would come to volunteer, whether they were volunteering sort of on a one-off type thing or people who were sort of dedicating. And for me, and I call them my teachers, the people that I spent most of my time with were people, they were primarily African-American and South Asian-American and some Arabs. Um, but they were people who were, they were volunteering at Iman. They were young people who were doing work, youth development work at Iman. Um, sort of, there was a group, a group of folks who were like 18 to 30 something. And then people who were a little bit older, uh, maybe 18 to twenties. And then people somewhat older who were sort of not, they were sort of really dedicated a lot of their time and efforts and energy to sort of building Iman and Iman's work. And so those are the folks that I spent most of my time with um, and who taught me about Muslim cool or how Muslim cool operated. Um, They were were women and young women and young men. Um, They didn't necessarily live in that neighborhood. Um, 
they lived, some of them lived in the suburbs, um, and some of them lived in, um, sort of the, sort of the, in, in Chicago, you know, Chicago is a deeply, highly segregated city and the suburbs are as well. And so some folks who are black might live in the South suburbs where black folks who left the South side have moved to, and then people live in the North, North and the Western, and then the Southwest suburbs was a huge Palestinian community. So they were sort of coming into the city, um, to work at Eman. And one of the things that uh, I kind of have an article that's come out, I guess it was last year when I was kind of talking about what that meant and the significance of that, particularly for the Arab and South Asian U.S. American young people, because I think that part of, part of the, um, part of the ways in which immigrant communities are encouraged, right. um, When they come to the United States, and the suburbs, too, were this place of that is where you built your American dream, right? And the suburbs were outside of the cities and away from blackness. Um, and that was the, and that's the, and that and there's, there's incentive and encouragement from dominant society for people to do that. And I think for these young Arabs and South Asian U.S. American Muslims, for them to come into the city um, was important and important because I think the city is often a place like suburb, like, you know, urban suburban relationships, often us people do come in from the suburbs to like give charity, right? It's like, okay, well, I'm going to like, you know, I'm from a suburb and I'm going to go into the city and we're going to do like a feeding or something like that. But that's not what these young people were doing. They weren't coming to Iman to sort of give charity. They were coming to Iman to be engaged in social justice work. And that social justice work for them was how they kind of how they were understanding or finding out what it meant to be a Muslim and how to be a Muslim. And so I think, so I think, and so the difference here, I think, which is important is that it's one thing to be suburban and come into the city and give charity because you're trying to be a pious Muslim and like, you know, well, this is a good deed for me to do. It's another thing to come into the city and to work around social justice issue, right? And I think, and then, and then, and then learn from that work, how to be a Muslim, you know, like it's a different kind of like position that they take to that. And so that was something that was, I think, a key thing. And that was part of the Muslim pool. Now, that being said, because everything is so, because everything is complicated, I don't think that that relationship, because there's an unequal power relationship, right? It's class and it's also race. And so I don't think that that relation, that goes away, right? It's not that that doesn't just, it's like, isn't obliterate into the air, right? Because this is not a kumbaya kind of space, but it is something that people are mediating and dealing with and struggling with. And I think that is what's key here. Now, um, this, this comes out in a bunch of ways. One of the ways you really, um, Look at this uh, idea of Muslim cool is through black Muslim style as a mm-hmm. way of uh, kind of self-making. And, um, and you have two chapters kind of revolving around this. And the first um, looks at Muslim women's veiling habits. So can you talk a little bit about uh, how does a Muslim cool play into, uh, I, I guess, um, women's uh, fashion mm-hmm. choices, um, right. and also like the the kind of flip side about this with the the relationship of this style to uh, to non black American Muslims, right? Yeah. So yeah, so I talk about style. I mean, I think I think that makes. I mean, it's hip hop, you know. So like, so style is very important, and it's also like, and it's also I think going back to Stuart Hall, right? It's like black popular culture too. Style is very important, and I think we think about black folks and how we have. Um, resisted and survived and thrived um, under sort of extreme duress and violence and targeting, you know, kind of style becomes an important way of sort of ex- just expression and resistance and redemption, right? And so I, it, it made a lot of sense that I would end up in that space and hip hop does that specifically as well. Um, so I talked about headscarf styles um, in the book to kind of think about um that practice, that stylistic practice would also think about like questions of race and class. And so I focus on um, a scarf style, which is basically like a scarf that's tied um, in a bun in the back of a head, at the back of the head. Now this is an Afro diasporic style. It's something that you will find women of the African diaspora wearing probably all over the world, uh, and particularly in the U.S. context. Um, 
in a Muslim context, it becomes a way of covering, right? So Muslim women who want to adhere to um, what they understand to be as prescriptions from God to dress modestly, which includes covering their hair, like this becomes a way of doing that. It becomes a way of doing that because Black Muslim women author that. Right, they wear it that way. They do it this way, and they're like, "Well, I'm Muslim. I cover my hair. This is what I do," and that style resonates for them because it's both fulfilling their religious obligation, but also is culturally relevant and appropriate. Um, because of the relationship between black style and cool in the United States, right, and the ways in which you know um, notions of what is or is not cool is often taken from black practices. Um, then that style, right, that these Muslim women are wearing, um, and because hip-hop and Islam have a relationship, right, it becomes a cool style. Like it becomes cool, right? So it's not just this kind of thing that Black Muslims are doing for themselves, but also that other people are looking at and like, oh, that's cool. If I'm Muslim and I want to be cool and I want to cover, oh, I want to do that too, right? Like this kind of thing. But... You know, but if I'm not black, <laughs> I wear this headscarf style. Like, then, like, what does that mean, right? Like, like, what's what's going on there? And so, part of what I try to talk about in the chapter is thinking about, okay, well, what does it mean for them to do that, right? One person that I talk about in the chapter, she shared this really kind of funny story um, about that actually opened up the chapter for me about how she was a Pakistani, young Pakistani U.S. American, middle upper middle class woman. She was at this university for a summer. She had an internship and she had a supervisor who was a white woman and she wore her scarf in that manner. And the woman was like, oh, you're so hood. I'm going to call you hood jabby. Now, hood jabby is a play on hijabi, which is a word that a lot of U.S. American Muslims have been using to describe women who wear headscarves, right? A hijabi. So this woman called her hood jabby. Now, she's not black. She's not from the hood at all, right? And But she's called her hood jabby. And I was like, Wait, wait, wait a minute. What's going on here? Like, I need to understand. And so she explained to me that the woman had said, well, she said she thought the woman called her hijabi because she would use different kinds of like African-American vernacular English or like hip hop nation language, like peace or bounce, things like that. And the way she talked because how she wore her scarf. And I just thought it was such a like, like intellectually such a like thrilling and crazy moment because like the ways in which, like, because the woman collapsed, right? Like race and class and religion, like she's collapsed it all into this headscarf style, right? Which then illustrated or illuminated, like, what does it mean for this young Pakistani U.S. American woman to do that, right? What does it mean for her to, to decide to wear her scarf that way? And some of the other women I talked to, when they wore that, the non-Black women, it was sort of, yes, it was like, it was a complicated practice. So on one level, this one woman, she was like, you know, well, when I came to Iman and started working at Iman, I saw people wearing that and I liked it because I thought it was cool. You know, I could wear my earrings out. You could see them, you know, and I wanted to wear a headscarf. But, you know, because she had been at Iman and because she had recognized that, you know, she isn't black and what that might mean for her, it was about, okay, well, she said she ultimately wears a scarf, that style, but she waits, right? And she kind of waits until she feels like she kind of, I guess sort of has permission or like the people in the community know who she is and know what she's about. Right. Before she's going to sort of do that to wear that headscarf style. Um, and so she kind of does that on the flip side, you know, for the black Muslim woman that I talk about, um, in the chapter, that scarf was not, that style was about, it wasn't about, so, you know, so, so for, I guess, so, so for the non-black women, then the scarf is this kind of way of being Muslim that's cool to them. And that also represents and reflects their own kind of like political stances or their political investment in, you know, challenging anti-blackness and challenging racial equality more broadly. Whereas for the black women, um, particularly one in particular for her, who most of her friends were non-black, they were Palestinian, U.S. American young women, for her, you know, it was about re- reaffirming the connection between her Muslim identity and her blackness, right? Because the style is so clearly black, right? And it's so clearly Muslim, then for her, the idea of wearing it was something that would just kind of re- re- reinvigorate or reaffirm that relationship that was being challenged, right? And other spaces in her life where that wasn't, people were like, you know, those two things don't necessarily go together. And so in the chapter basically is a long way of kind of saying, kind of thinking about the multiple ways in which a headscarf style, right, can be reflecting not just a religious choice, like a choice to sort of, you know, um, 
uh, fulfill an obligation, but also how it can be, how it's embedded in and entangled in and reflects the ways in which race and class shape, right, what it means to be Muslim or how you do Islam in the United States. And and you look at this also uh, in relation to fashion among black Muslim men, uh, Mm -hmm. dubbed Muslim dandies. So what, what, how would you characterize Muslim dandies? Um, and then how is this type of style uh, used to construct kind of a particular formulations of masculinity? Uh, mm-hmm. Right. And what, and I guess what, what are those communicate? Yeah, yeah. So the dandies were are primarily black, although one of the, one of the men that I, that I interviewed was not, he was Filipino um, background. And, but what they shared was that they were converts to Islam um, and they had come through Islam through hip hop and they, as when, when becoming Muslim, they kind of um, sort of are in, they kind of introduced to what I call the politics of pious respectability. So this idea that in order to be Muslim and be authoritatively Muslim, you have to look a certain kind of way, right? And so the kinds of ways that they had looked coming into Islam, ways that were inspired by hip hop and sort of black urban culture were no longer appropriate, right? Or, or deemed inappropriate. Again, according to these kind of ethno-religious hegemonies of Arab and South Asian Muslim communities. And so initially then, okay, if I'm going to be Muslim and I'm going to study this religion and I'm going to be authoritative, I'm going to do something else. But then for them, so the dandy sort of style becomes a, a kind of way of rejecting that and reclaiming, right? Reclaiming, you know, some of the men, the black men in particular, they talk about, you know, the suited and booted nation of Islam, their grandfathers, you know, there's this one story that's not in the book that's in the article that I'm hopefully one day will finish. Um, but where this uh, one uh, dandy, Muslim dandy, he's like how him and some friends were at um, this uh, kind of like religious retreat, I guess uh, you want to say. Um, and it was a time for the morning prayer for Fudger. And, you know, they went to the prayer and he was like, you know, they had, you know, they all had on something like a lungi or like a thobe or something that was dressed not from the United States, right? From a Muslim community, a Muslim culture, particularly either from South Asia or so Southeast Asia or the Middle East. And then this one Black American Muslim scholar walks in um, to the uh, to the Fajr prayer, and he was like, he's in some like maroon satin pajamas, like a two piece, right? And he was like, and he was like, me and my friend just looked at him like, is he just walk in here in some satin pajamas? And like that's something like my grandfather would wear, you know, or my uncle would wear, right? And he was like, and it hit me, you know, like why am I like in a thobe, right? <laughs> you know, like to do this and hear this guy coming in, like this is what this is what the men in my community wears. So this is what the men in my community wears, my family wears, and there's nothing wrong with this right? There's nothing wrong with that dress. And in fact, if I'm actually committed not only to my own religious kind of like growth as an individual, but I'm also committed to my community, then I need to embrace those styles and those traditions. And, you know, and it is, and it's a tradition for black men of looking good, you know, um, and of suiting and these kind of things. And so it's like, if I'm going to do that, I should, I should dress out of a space of connection and commitment to the community that, that raised me that I came from. And so I think, so similar to the, the black young woman that I talked about before, right. Sort of taking on this style. So in, in dandy is for people who don't know. So, you know, a dandy is a kind of character that people talk about, particularly someone who transgresses social class um, and then particularly for white men who were dandies, it was social class and also gender. So sort of bending or transgressing what, what people think is how a man should dress because of the flamboyance and the style that a dandy would have. And then black dandyism is something that people talk about. And so there's like um, Monica Miller's book, Slave to Fashion, that talks about this idea of transgressing, not just social class. So like if I'm working class and I dress like an elite person, but also for black people, that means so transgressing sort of ideas of black inferiority through style, right? Using sartorial um, ways of, uh, of dressing as a way of challenging that. And so um, I think, so, so, so these men are sort of engaging that, that, that practice of black dandyism um, in a context. So they're, so they're both, so the, so the black dandy is challenging, you know, kind of um, and ideas of black inferiority coming from white supremacist frameworks. Right. Um, 
and redeeming, right? Sort of challenging that and redeeming black sort of black practice of black identity through style. And so they're doing that. And on the same time, they are also challenging these politics of pious respectability that come out of Arab and South Asian communities that say in order to be authoritative and legitimately Muslim, you have to dress like this, right? So they're sort of doing both of those things at the same time um, through their style. And then they're also seeking connection, right, with their communities, reconnection, reaffirmation with the communities that they came from as well. Now, um, you, you mentioned this a little bit earlier, um, these um, kind of government-sponsored cultural diplomacy trips mm-hmm. uh, that some Muslim hip-hop artists um, go on. Um, can, you, can you tell us what these are all about? And I guess, how, how do we understand these within the frame of, of Muslim cool? Right. So, yeah. So, you know, these hip-hop diplomacy trips are were not necessarily Muslim-focused, right? So I think these these trips started, they were you know, sort of like this idea of, and this in general, cultural diplomacy. Right? Cultural diplomacy is a part of sort of U.S. foreign policy, right? And sort of sharing U.S. cultural forms with audiences abroad as a way of teaching people about from the state's perspective, what the U.S. is, right? Um, I think, you know, I think Hisham Aidi writes about this too, this idea of kind of perception management, right? So you think this is who we are, but no, this is who we really are. And so the the much earlier form of this, you know, was during the Cold War with the jazz tours, right? And so as a way of um, sort of challenging sort of the Soviet Union and claims about the United States as being a racist country, right? Um jazz musicians were sent to different parts of the world to perform as as cultural as a form of cultural cultural diplomacy to sort of sort of give a different perspective or what the state went to a different perspective of what who the US was and what the US's intentions were around the world, right? And for these jazz musicians and Penny Von Eschen, she writes about this, you know, they had a, you know, sort of the state has its agenda and then they have their agenda and they don't always align. Right. Um, but they're part, but you know, so for some of them, I think the argument is sort of, they are, they see it as an opportunity to make connections, right. That are maybe even outside of sort of, um, sort of transnational, right. Um, sort of connections. I think likewise you find then when hip hop diplomacy happens and then when Muslims are engaged in that, I think for the state, it's the same idea. Right. And so I followed, um, a tour, of a group of Muslims who were um, sent to the UK. They were sent to the UK, which is not a Muslim-majority country, but does have a significant Muslim population. And I think when I talked to sort of the... um, when I talked to the sort of the um, official, right, who was um, kind of like their their person um, in the UK, um, this was the same idea. Like, you know, we're you know, we're a democracy, and we want to show people that we're a democracy. And everybody has a place, and everyone has you know, everyone belongs. Everyone has a place here, and so we're trying to do with this tour. I think for the artists, there. I think for the artists, um, you know. Their, their 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 motivation is not to show how democratic the United States is. Like that's not why they're there. I mean, I think so. I think they're there one like they're artists and they got to eat, and so this is an opportunity to do that. I think um, they're also there because this opportunity. I think similar to the jazz artists to make transnational connections and to connect to people else outside 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 of the U.S. And then I do think, and I I, I don't say so much. I don't. I wouldn't say so much for the particular group of people that I was engaged with in the UK, but I think other groups who have done this too. I do think there's this kind of um, like potential at home benefit, right? Like this one group who wasn't on the on the tour that I followed, but they mentioned this idea of like, well, you know, this it becomes a sign, like you know, of you know. American Muslims are concerned about belonging and whether or not we are seen as that we belong in the United States and that we have a place and a seat at the table, et cetera, et cetera. And so participating in these kind of activities, right, can help reinforce the belonging, right, that we actually are here, right? But, and this is, I think, for me, the key thing about this whole thing and, and, and what I try to argue in, in, in the chapter is about, like, the, not so much about what they're doing, like the artists, like if they go or they don't go on the tours, but what is this political context that we're in where these are my options, right? Like that, you know, 
in order to belong, I have to, you know, so I go, you know, so like the, like the idea of that, the, this idea of, and I call it bargaining to belong, right? So in order to sort of get a seat at the table or to, um, to be acknowledged, what is it, what is, what is, what's the bargain here? Like, what do I have to give up to get that? Right. And this is a political context that the, the American Muslims don't create, right? We create this context, but it's one in which we live in, right? One in which, um, there's this like domestication of, of racial politics in which, you know, there's a sense of multiculturalism in which, yeah, you know, we have the Muslims and the blacks and the Jews and the Hispanics, you know, we have all these different kind of groups and they all are here and we're multicultural. Um, yet that multiculturalism doesn't, um, is, is, is more mythical, right. Than real. Um, but, if you're trying to get recognition from the state and you're trying to be recognized and get whatever that they may have to offer, right? This kind of multicultural framework is the only option you really have, right? To sort of argue for and to kind of put forward, well, let me get my rights too, right? And we know that because, and one of the things that I end the book on in that chapter too is that because, you know, and, and I use the work of this woman, Sua Kwan, and she talks about this um, administration, right? This idea of administering groups um, of sort of different sort of ethnic groups, sort of administering them, sort of giving them some form of representation or some form of inclusion, but really as a means of sort of maintaining, right, kind of a, a, the status quo and particularly a white status quo. And so, but the, but the, but the challenge is if you were to sort of reject that, completely. Like, I don't want any parts of this kind of multicultural inclusion sort of framework. Then what are your options, right? What kind of political options do you actually have? And, 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 and beyond what options do you have, what type of political repression are you bound to experience? Because if we look at, you know, sort of black radical, um, sort of black power, black radical movement, right? Um, people were killed or incarcerated. Like that's what happened. So if you, if you don't want to fall into that framework, this is what your options are. And so, and it's kind of, I don't, I don't mean to be super bleak about it, but I think for me, that's really what I was trying to try to understand. Like what is this political context in which this becomes an option at all? Like hip hop, you know, hip hop is this music that comes from, you know, these communities are completely marginalized, right? Completely marginalized um, in U.S. history historically, and even the time hip hop emerges. So, how do we get from that happening to you know, forty, fifty years later? You know, there are these like U.S. you know State Department reports that are talking about how wonderful the country is, and using hip hop as an example. It's like, like, how do you get there? <laughs> like, like, what is going on? You know, and I think sort of what I tried to do in that chapter was track, you know, how things change politically and then what options Muslim have, Muslims have and how they kind of navigate that. Well, Sua, there's so much more to the book. And I really I hope people, I mean, we talked a lot about the kind of the, the big threads that are going through it. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the great things about the book is this kind of rich description you give of your, uh, your teachers. Mm-hmm. So I, I do hope people will track it down for that. Um, before I let you go, I'd love to hear what you're working on now. People, I'm sure, are excited to see what uh, what's coming up next. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, one, I'm always working on Sapelo Square. So Sapelo Square is an online resource on Black Muslims in the United States. It's a website that I created and work with a group of amazing um, volunteers on to, you know, kind of invite people to learn about and learn from black Muslims in the United States. And so I continue to work on Sapelo and we continue to sort of create, I think, great and accessible content around black Muslims. Um, so I do that. And then the next thing that I am sort of at the very, very beginnings of is a project that I call Umi's archive and Umi's archive is, I think at the end of the day, it's going to be kind of a multi-platform project. So right now I have a website, umisarchive.com, but there's there's not that much on there. There's some stuff down there, but it's basically, I'm building an archive around my mother. Uh, Her name was, um, she was born Orgy Weeks and when she became Muslim, her name was Amina Masalhaq and she passed away in October of 2017. And, uh, I had no plans on doing anything about my mother's life. And in fact, I had plans on not really working on Islam 
I was going to like do something completely different. I was I still interested in hip hop and gentrification in particular and how that was going to change hip hop music and culture. And so that's kind of where I was interested in as well as questions of black imperialism. And so that's really where I was headed. But with her untimely departure from this life, I had to sort of um, kind of, you know, you have to when, you, when people die, you have to kind of move stuff around, get stuff together, you know, this kind of stuff. And as I was doing that, I began to sort of find all this really kind of, really sort of, I think, fantastic bits and pieces of like history um, that she was a part of. You know, my mother, she lived a remarkable life, although she wasn't singular. And so I think that's the thing about her. You know, she, you know, she, her life story is one of the black middle class. It's one of black internationalism is one of the African diaspora. It's one of conversion, right? She was also part of the black Panther party. Um, and, and then she was this community activist and she was a mother and, and a wife and, you know, it's all these different sorts of things that she did, I think reflect this generation that, that she represents. And so I'm really interested in sort of kind of, sort of like building an archive and, and, and looking at what's happening in her life and what stories it tells. So like, just as a quick example, I found a letter in my grandmother's basement that my mother had written to a friend of hers that she never mailed. And it was dated November of 1971. And in the letter, she talks about Dick Gregory. She went to Ohio State University. And so she talks about Dick Gregory's visit to her campus. She also talks about Kathleen Cleaver's visit to her campus. And when I was saw the Dick Gregory thing, and let me tell you something, like Dick Gregory is funny 40 years later and in the third person. Cause like, I'm reading this letter and I'm dying. Like she's talking about what he said, but in any event, I'm just kind of like, oh, okay, you know, let me, um, I was like, oh, let me Google and see if I could find, you know, like a newspaper clipping, you know, that says when Dick Gregory came to Ohio state, I did not find the clipping. What I did find, like the first thing I found was his FBI file. So it's online, right? It's been foiled. And the FBI has an entry, three pages on his visit to Ohio State. And it like was kind of like my head almost kind of exploded a little bit on a lot of different levels. Like in terms of one, you know, I, I knew I, eventually I was going to foil my mother to see what I could find about her in particular. Right. But this idea that federal documents also become part of your sort of like archival history like personally, right? Like these, like these become part of sort of history. But then also because of the ways in which the FBI's account and my mother's account are similar and different. And so they have detail that she doesn't have, right? Because they talk about, you know, how much it costs to go inside and all this kind of stuff. They say things like she says, like she talks about how Dick Gregory talks about how, um, white folks and black folks need to boycott, right? He's encouraging a boycott to end the Vietnam War, whereas the, the FBI's rendition is only, says that Dick Gregory only said black people need to boycott, right? So his kind of, so Dick Gregory's em- emphasis on sort of interracial, you know, solidarity is missing from the FBI account. But then also, you know, part of the letter talks about how Dick Gregory, the, the African-American student organization on campus had nominated him to become president of Ohio State, right? So my mother mentions that in her letter, and, and the FBI does too. But the difference between those accounts is that my mother actually never says she was at the meeting. She kind of just mentions it like a third person thing. Whereas the FBI report is like, you know, because you know they redact everything. So it's like blank and blank and blank from the Afro, you know, met on blank to do this. So it was like, so basically to me, it's like, so they were at the student meeting, right? So it's one thing for the FBI and they were using local law enforcement and they also seem to have relationships with campus police. So it was one thing for them to be at a public event where Dick Gregory is, you know, giving a speech. It's another thing for them to be at a student organization where they're discussing about nominating, right, him for this kind of thing. And so, and so the residents, so both, so both the kind of like historical depth, the historical riches of her letter, but also its resonances, right, with what's happening today. Right. And when we think about like recently that the black identity extremist thing that came out, you know, the FBI responding on Black Lives Matter, you know, um, uh, black, black Lives Matter activists, as well as continued surveillance of students on campuses and, you know, and just radical movements in general. So in any event, that's just an example of something that kind of came up randomly from that. And so those are the kind of things that I'll just be kind of thinking about and pursuing. And that that experience. So, you know, I also do performance, right? I have a performance piece called Sample Beats of Muslim Life. And so I've actually added a part of the letter and this letter FBI thing 
to the performance as well. So I think that this project will be both this website where I'm kind of, you know, sort of curating materials that are there that are interesting, I think, to, to various different ways in which her life is compelling to broader questions of black, the Black experience, as well as performatively. And then probably there'll be a book or something, too. So that's what's up for me next. Well, she sounds like an amazing person, and it sounds like a, a wonderful project to, uh, to to work on. So good luck. Thank you. And uh, thanks for writing this wonderful book, and thanks for making time to talk about it. No problem. You're welcome. Thanks again. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Suad Abdul-Kabir about her wonderful book, Muslim Cool, Race, Religion, and Hip-Hop in the United States, published with NYU Press in 2016.